Welcome to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, presented by the Institute for Biblical Worship at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's right, I said the Doxology and Theology Podcast, a podcast for worship leaders who know that the gospel is so good it has to be sung. I'm your host, Matthew Westerholm, Associate Professor of Church Music and Worship at Southern Seminary and the Executive Director of the Institute for Biblical Worship. In today's episode, we're dipping into our worship resources to bring you a clip by me, Dr. Matthew Westerholm. I serve as Associate Professor of Church Music and Worship here at Southern Seminary. I've written some songs, some articles for places like Desiring God, the Gospel Coalition, and of course the Doxology and Theology website. This message is taken from our 2021 conference, and my topic here is Worship and the Trinity. My first job in high school was working at a grocery store. I worked there as a beggar, a grocery cart collector, mop guy, you name it. And so when I got married, I told my new wife, I said, let me do the grocery shopping. I'm good at grocery stores. And she said, okay, here's my grocery list of the things we need. And I went to the store and I did that like twice before she stopped sending me. And I think it's because she sent me with her list and I would come home with Pop-Tarts, Popsicles, Pop-Rocks, Circus Peanuts, Red Vines, and Combos. And so I no longer get to do the grocery shopping in my home. My new job, though, is keeping our refrigerator stocked. We've got a little closet pantry And whenever the fridge starts to get empty, my new job is to go to the pantry, grab some beverages, and bring them to the fridge. And by the way, when I say beverages, boy students, I mean sparkling water. Sparkling water, not anything else. Presbyterians, we can hear you laughing. Uh, um, Acts 29 Network, your jokes are hilarious. But I'm back to my introduction. I grab these cans of LaCroix and I bring them to the fridge. Can you picture me doing this? It's about 15 feet between my, these, these two locations. And I have this little game where I try to move as many cans in a single trip as I possibly can, right? So I shape my arms into a basket and load cans of carbonated water. Here we go. Okay, okay, okay. And it's at this point that Lisa gets a sinister smile. My wife starts teasing me, and I'm only walking 15 feet, but I have to do it very gingerly, and I have to do it with two very full arms, and she says, hang on just a second. This is the sort of loving relationship we have. And um, she reaches into the pantry, and she pulls out like two or three additional cans. And she's like, here, put these on your pile. And I'm furious, right? Because if you give me one more can, I'm going to drop like four cans of carbonated water. I will be LaCroixing Latiers. That joke is so bad, my wife made me promise to tell you that she told me not to tell it. Okay. But I have now kept my promise to her. So if you can picture that with me, 
I'm hoping you can feel my analogy. This is my analogy for how it feels to attend a worship conference, especially a worship conference on the Trinity, okay? As worship leaders, friends, it can feel like you are holding about 15 cans. You are holding on to musical excellence and volunteer recruitment and private and personal worship and artistic expression and liturgical order and navigating the worship wars and cultivating and engaging public personality and proofreading the PowerPoint and espousing good theology and building my relationship with my preaching pastor and finding those XLR chords that the youth pastor borrowed, and the argument about Hillsongs and Bethel, and discipleship issues with my volunteers, and spiritual gifts, and the discussion on ethnic harmony, and the glitchy live stream from our service, and the sound closet that no one has keys for in this entire church, not even the elders. Being a worship leader or serving in worship ministry feels like I have so much stuff in my arms right now. And here comes doxology and theology with a conference and a sinister smile to tell you about Trinitarian worship. And that can feel like, here, let me drop another can on top of your very full arms and we're just going to watch it all fall down. That's what it can feel like. But what I'm here to tell you is that Trinitarian worship is not another can. Trinitarian worship is not another can. Oh, I should probably say something to our people who are listening on the audio-only podcast right now. Welcome to the Doxology and Theology podcast. At this point, the speaker held up a series of plastic rings that could hold six cans. Okay. Now back, Trinitarian worship is a glorious reality, the powerful truth that helps you hold on to all sorts of different things. If you don't understand Trinitarian worship, then you have overflowing arms full of different things that don't seem to hold together. You hold on to all these different concepts, such as the object of our praise, singing about the cross, a theology of salvation, celebrating the gospel. What about Christ-centeredness? What about the spiritual gifts? Trinitarian worship is not one more thing. It's the glorious reality that makes sense of so many of the things that we're trying to hold on to. So our goal at this conference, my goal in this message, is to help you understand Trinitarian worship, to provide a sun for the solar system of your worship thinking, an enormous gravitational center for your ministry that will help you hold together the many things that orbit around and help you walk the 15 feet from the closet pantry of your call to ministry to the refrigerator of your eternal home. My analogy fell apart. I'm sorry. So let's start with some clarification. Two things that we don't mean when we're talking about Trinitarian worship. Two things we don't mean. First, when we talk about Trinitarian worship, we don't simply mean singing songs that teach the doctrine of the Trinity. 
That's a temptation, and it's especially tempting to the group of theologically-minded people that I'm speaking to right now. It is tempting to say, hey, I was looking through all the songs we sang over the past year. A great idea, by the way. And it doesn't even have the word Trinity in it. We need to sing some songs that teach the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, that's not my point. That might be true, but that's not my point. I don't believe that we need a bunch of hymns that educate us on the details of historic Trinitarian doctrine, like mapping the distinctives between the imminent and economic Trinity. I mean, that's a glorious truth, but that's probably a terrible song. I mean, let me just save you some time. Do you know what rhymes with economic Trinity? Gastronomic infinity. Okay? anatomic vicinity. These are the words. We're not talking about trying to sing more songs that can teach us about the Trinity. This is doxology and theology, not pedagogy and theology. So a second clarification. When we're talking about Trinitarian worship, we don't mean equally mentioning the three persons of the Trinity. That's not what we're talking about. Trinitarian worship does not mean you got to spend 33.3, repeat, percent of the time singing about the Father, one-third of the time singing about the Son, and one-third of the time singing about the Spirit. Partialism revisited, Patrick. Trinitarian worship does not involve trying to divide the adoration into equal thirds to be distributed among the divine persons. But sadly, when I see blogs or articles discussing the Trinity in worship, they commonly complain that evangelical worship mentions a shocking amount of Jesus. Like, sure, Keith Getty, in Christ alone, but how about a song like, In the Spirit as Well? That's not what we mean when we're discussing Trinitarian worship. What do we mean? Two basics for thinking about the Trinity and how the Trinity works. First, all of God's works are Trinitarian works. There's nothing that God does that he doesn't do as a Trinity. Scott Swain, in his excellent introduction on the Trinity, entitled The Trinity and introduction, says, the works of God are not a matter of three friends getting together, each doing his part to accomplish a common goal, nor are the works of God the exhibition of some indistinct force. The works of God are the works of the thrice holy trinity. So let's consider some examples. Who created the world? Well, God created the world, and creation was a Trinitarian activity. Genesis 1.1 tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, oh, it's the Father who created. But then Genesis 1.2 hastens to tell us that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit was at work in creation from the very beginning. And John 1.3 tells us that all things were made through Christ, and without him was not anything made that was made. Creation is a wonderful example of the truth, that everything that God does, he does as the Trinity. Another example, redemption. Redemption is Trinitarian. The Father ordains redemption. The Son accomplishes redemption. The Spirit applies redemption. Redemption's a Trinitarian work. There are no people in the universe, zero people, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, but have not been redeemed by the work of Christ. 
You never have one person in the Trinity working against or cross-purposes with the others. They work Trinitarianally. I couldn't... I've been working on an adverb version of Trinity for three weeks now, and I have failed miserably. Uh, one of our doctoral students suggested Trinitarily, and she's smart, so I'm going with it. Thank you, Chessa. Everything that God does, he does as a trinity. All of his works are indivisible. They don't divide up between the divine persons. You can never say, oh, that's something the Spirit does, and Jesus has nothing to do with that. You can never say, that's something Jesus does. The Spirit has nothing to do with that. Someone might suggest, well, Jesus was incarnated, and neither the Spirit nor the Father was incarnated. Good. But even Christ's incarnation was a Trinitarian activity, right? Christ was sent by the Father to be incarnated, and he became human as, quote, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and the power of the Most High overshadowed her, Luke 1.35. The incarnation is Trinitarian. Jesus' ministry on earth, Trinitarian. The Son, this is John 5.19, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The Spirit descends on Christ to begin his ministry, Luke 3.22. The Spirit leads Jesus to all sorts of different places, Luke 4, verses 1, 14, and 18. Everything that God does, he does as a trinity. The finer details of this discussion take us into the realm of what theologians call appropriations, which is the special association that certain works of the Trinity have with certain persons of the Trinity based on the way that certain works specially manifest personal properties of the Trinity. It's, that's, that's great fun, but that's not our topic this morning. Everything God does, he does as the Trinity. Secondly, it's very important for us to recognize that one of the main goals God has for humanity maybe the main goal, different theologians have different ways of saying this, is the idea of union with God in Christ. Union with God in Christ. And even though you hear God's name, union with God, and you hear Christ in there with Christ, we also have to recognize the reality that that union does not happen apart from the Spirit. The Spirit is the agent that brings about the union of people with God in Christ. This task, this main task, is Trinitarian. So friends, that is where this whole thing is going. Union with God in Christ. Now, not a fusion, not a fusion, not like Goku and Vegeta performing the fusion dance. We never get fused into God's essence. The distinction between the creator and the creation never gets blurred at all. We never lose ourselves in God. But gloriously, friends, we get to participate in an ever-increasing way in the divine life, like a mathematical formula where you're getting closer and closer, but you never fully arrive. Our eternity will be spent increasingly participating in the overwhelming abundance of the divine life. Wow. We all know that every analogy for God's triune nature falls short. He's not three states of water. That's modalism. He's not three members of a really exclusive club. That's partialism. 
He's not even memory, will, and understanding, although gold ribbon, that's the best try in the history of the church, Augustine, but it's still partialistic modalism. When the Bible says over and over again that there's no one like him, it means it, okay? And that doesn't just mean that God is stronger than us or smarter than us or bigger than us. It means, uh, perhaps most of all, that there is no one in his category. He's triune. Nothing else is. Who is like the Lord, Psalm 113 asks, the one who sits enthroned on high? Who is like the Lord, Israel Houghton asks, and the answer, nobody. Who is like the Lord? No, 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 nobody. So as worship leaders, we have to take our cues about how God works from the ways that the scripture describes him and not resort to our human categories. So let's consider the Bible's language for thinking about the Trinity and in particular, the biblical description of light. I'm calling this Trinitarian light motifs. If I lost you with the Dragon Ball Z reference, I'm hoping to get you back with a Wagner reference, two arms to get around the people here at Doxology and Theology. Your mind is probably racing to a few verses when I say this. Light motifs for God. 1 John 1.5, God says God is light. Let me trace the main points of the scripture's testimony here. The Father is called, James 1.17, the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He dwells, 1 Timothy 6.16, in inapproachable light. Next, remember that Jesus is described in Hebrews 1.3 as the radiance of the Father's glory. And John 1.9 tells us that Jesus is the true light that gives light to the world. So because the Father is light and the Son is the radiance of the Father's glory, the Nicene Creed rightly describes Jesus as light from light. And then God gives the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation to enlighten our hearts. Ephesians 1 verses 17 and 18 tells us, shining Christ into our hearts. Now, if you zoned out there for a minute, come back, because this is one of the main takeaways of my talk. Ready? The Holy Spirit shines in a twofold way to help people see Christ, to help people see the light of God first. The Holy Spirit shines from the outside, the light of Christ into our hearts. And second, from the inside, he heals our blindness to allow us to actually see. Do you recognize how God needs to work on both sides of this equation? Now, the problem isn't with God. Uh, the problem isn't with Jesus. The problem isn't with the Bible. The Bible doesn't need to be illuminated. It's us. <laughs> The beauty and glory of Jesus Christ is clearly visible except for the fact that our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, don't work like they should. So our Trinitarian God simultaneously works in these two ways and probably hundreds of, of others. He shows us from the outside the revealed Christ and then from the inside he gets behind our eyes and he fixes them so that we can see what he's revealing. That sort of twofold understanding of God's work is essential for worship leaders to get a hold of. We have to remember how broken we are. We have to remember how blind we are. We have to remember even scripture says dead, how dead we are. 
the Lord Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And boy, was he right. And so worshiping God is not as simplistic as God reveals himself and then our response is worship. If you like this concept that I'm about to talk about, you're going to love the recent dissertation by our friend Devin Coughlin. Such an excellent um, um, uh, tracing of this theme throughout Scripture. You've, have you heard about revelation and response, right? It's, it's a very helpful concept. It contains some very helpful ways to consider our worship services in terms of God's revealing work and our worship is a response. But that concept is a bit simplistic because those two activities are not symmetrical. Because of the blindness of our eyes, because of the darkness of our hearts, because of the deadness of our hearts, the Trinitarian God needs to reveal himself from the outside and then come around to the inside and remove our blindness, shine light into our darkened minds, and breathe life into our dead hearts so that we can respond. Our response is not separate from his work, as if these are two equal activities. God reveals, we respond. Trinitarian worship helps us understand that there is a fullness and a richness to God's activity that we often miss. God is, from the outside, revealing himself. Here I am. Here's my revelation. This is who I am. This is what I have done. And he also must, because of how broken and sinful we are, come in us and through us to open us up. Ephaphra, Jesus said in Mark 7:34, be opened. He must open our eyes to see, open our minds to understand, open our hearts to feel, even open up our taste buds, you know what I mean? To taste the sweetness of Christ. Otherwise, we wouldn't taste and see that the Lord is good. This is one of the things that Trinitarian worship helps us understand. The spirit of illumination shines Christ upon human eyes that he must open so that we can see. And he shines into our hearts that he must regenerate so that they can beat. And he shines onto our hands and our feet so that they can move and serve him. So now we're ready to understand the ways that we fit into this light motif. God is the father of lights. Jesus is the light of the world. The spirit shines. And what are we? We become people of light. Ephesians 5.8 says, now you are light in the Lord. And so here's my new favorite illustration of what a church is, a church gathering. This is borrowed from a very helpful essay by Kevin Van Hooser. God is light and church on Sunday morning is a flash mob, a flash light, flash mob. What is a flash mob? Maybe you've seen them on YouTube when 200 people froze in place in the middle of New York City's Grand Central Station or the Christmas performance of the Hallelujah Chorus that happened in that food court in a mall. Here's the definition from Wikipedia. I can quote it. Undergrad students, don't quote from Wikipedia. This is a conference. Okay, a flash mob is, quote, a group of people who assemble suddenly in a public place, perform an unusual and seemingly pointless, <laughs> uh, seemingly pointless act for a brief time and then quickly disperse. A flash mob. I think that's a decent description of what we're doing on a Sunday morning. A group of people assemble suddenly in a public place. Whoa, what's this? 
They perform an unusual act. Wow, look, electric drums. That is unusual. I've never seen musician repellent. Sorry, I'm, I'm fine. You're, I, I know, it's the sound guy. And you've got new electric drums. I get it, okay. It seems pointless. They just seem to sing a bunch of songs about Jesus, and then they dispersed quickly. Friends, the, the important word there is seems pointless. It was not pointless. Then they quickly disperse. Churches are a flash mob, a people of light who gather in a unique, surprising, coordinated way, and then they're gone before you know it. Flash mob. So where am I going with this? I'm thinking through Trinitarian worship, and I want us to explore this phrase from Romans 11.36. One of the times I, I remember learning from, the first times I heard Matt Boswell speak, he spoke on this passage. It's so helpful. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's think through the ways, let's think through that verse and consider Trinitarian corporate worship through a sparkling water six-pack of six brief statements. First, Trinitarian worship means that God is the initiator of our praise. God is the initiator of our praise. From him are all things, right? And that means, first of all, we recognize worship begins with God revealing himself to us. But more than that, it means that God is the one who starts the praise in our minds in our hearts, and even in our mouths, right? Psalm 51, 15 says, Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. If worship is not Trinitarian, it's not Christian because we don't worship unless the Trinitarian God is at work from the outside and on the inside. Our love for God is initiated. Well, I'll just quote here, 1 John four ten. This is love, not that we loved God, that he loved us. Without his initiating movement in us, we will not, we cannot move toward him. Trinitarian praise means God is the initiator of our praise. Second, Trinitarian worship means God is the qualifier of our praise. Why does God hear our praise? Why do our songs reach his ears? Not because of the excellence of our music or the quality of our sound system or the fervency of our emotions or the integrity of our morality or the cultural innovation of our style or the historical depth of our heritage. The reason our songs and words count as praise, qualify as praise to the true and living God is because of Trinitarian worship. Sanctification is not just a topic for our lives, but also for our activities, including our activities in corporate worship. God the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit, is trinitarily working in us, cleaning us up, scrubbing down our praise, qualifying it, making it acceptable. Do you sometimes feel like your heart is only kind of there with God? Do you suffer from mixed motives on Sunday morning, hoping to glorify God, but also hoping that people will like you? Samesies. Really good news for you, though. Really good news for all of us here. God is going to fix our hearts one day, but on days like this, it's rough. As I went through this material with some of my Boyce College undergrad students, one of them said, speaking on behalf of the class, 
as a worship leader, even on those days when your heart is not completely feeling it, God's heart still is. Wow. Trinitarian worship means God is the qualifier of our praise. Third, a more obvious one. Trinitarian worship means that God is the recipient of our praise. Of course, God receives our praise rightfully. We praise a Trinitarian God. Let me go on record as saying, I don't think it's inappropriate for us to praise the different persons of the Trinity. Some people argue that Christians should praise the Father through the Son, by the Spirit. And I think that's well said, but can we agree that all three persons of the Trinity are praiseworthy? The Father has done things worthy of praise. Christ has done things worthy of praise. The Holy Spirit has done things worthy of praise. Some argue, well, the Holy Spirit is the shy member of the Trinity. He doesn't like attention. And I would completely agree if that verse was in the Bible. But it's not. Like, I checked the whole thing. Um, in many ways, a vital part of the Spirit's work is drawing attention to the Lord Jesus as he shines the light of glory um, on Christ, and he shines the light of Christ on human hearts. But that activity is praiseworthy, and we can rightly praise the Spirit without dishonoring the Lord Jesus. The reality is, any proper attention on the Son glorifies the Father. Any proper attention on the Spirit glorifies Christ. There is an amazing intertrinitarian conspiracy of self-glorification. We're going to get back to this theme in a minute, but for now, just hear these astounding words from John 17, 1. Jesus said, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Philippians 2 reveals the mystery that the father has highly exalted Christ. And when every knee bows to Jesus and every tongue confesses his name, it's to the glory of God the Father. So let us never pit the persons of the Trinity against one another. Partialism revisited. Get with the program, Patrick. Okay? Fourth, more briefly now, Trinitarian worship means that God is the mediator of our praise. Our praise reaches God because God has made a way, media between for us. The Father has made a way for us by his decree. The Son has made a way for us through his flesh. The Spirit has made a way for us through his initiating and sustaining and ongoing work in our lives, testifying with our spirit that we are children of God, crying, Abba, Father. Ephesians 2.18 tells us, for through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Fifth, Trinitarian worship means that God is the sustainer of our praise. Friends, as John MacArthur has reminded us on many occasions, if you could lose your salvation, you would. I lose all sorts of stuff. My keys, my coffee mug, my water bottle. Thank you, Emily, for bringing it back to my office. My bag. On the, on the back of my credit card, it says, if you lose this card, be sure to call this 1-800 number. Like, sorry, credit card, it's too late. Uh, so I, I have literally photocopied all of the contents of my wallet for the inevitable time when I lose it, because I lose stuff. And so I know if I could lose my salvation, I would. And so would you. 
What's the reason you have sustained and persevered in your love for God? If you're honest with yourself, you know it's because he's doing it. God is the one who is sustaining you. If it was entirely up to you, you would have given up a long time ago. When it was too hard, when it was too weird, when it didn't feel right, when it wasn't your favorite, you would have given up except somehow, and by somehow I mean trinitarily, God was at work in you and through you and for you, sustaining your praise because praise is Trinitarian. God is not just the recipient of your praise. He's also the sustainer of your praise. And six, our sixth can of LaCroix. Trinitarian worship means that God is the leader of our praise. Yes, worship leaders, God is the leader of our praise. This is Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 13. These are some verses that you probably should look up just to make sure they are in your Bible as well. Because the truth in them is so good, you probably need to see it to believe it. I'm quoting here, It was fitting that he, the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. He who sanctified and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, now the book of Hebrews is going to quote from Psalm 22, verse 22. And it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Jesus is our worship leader. Jesus Christ the Lord of glory is the one who on Sunday mornings in your midst is praising God. God's glory, his Trinitarian glory is his highest value. God himself loves his glory. Let me flesh this out for you. The father sees the son and he sees how beautiful the son is. He sees how perfect the son is. The Father is omniscient, and so he completely and exhaustively knows every single one of Christ's perfections. The Father knows all about Jesus, and the Father is astounded because Christ is completely perfect, he's completely praiseworthy, and the Father knows it. The Father knows it more than anyone else. And so the Father glorifies the Son. And the Son sees the Father. The Son sees how perfect the Father is. The Son sees how beautiful the Father is, because the Son is omniscient. Jesus Christ knows every single perfection of the Father. He sees how praiseworthy the Father is, and the Son praises the Father perfectly. And similarly, the Spirit. Different theologians differ on how to understand the role of the Holy Spirit within this inter-Trinitarian conspiracy of self-glorification. Jonathan Edwards believes the Spirit is the actual divine love between the Father and the Son. Most people disagree with him, but hey, Jonathan Edwards. So here's my point. 
Ready? When our hearts and our voices get caught up singing in praise to God, we are joining this astounding reality in some small but real and growing way we have participated in the divine life of the Trinity. Like a little sailboat caught in the breeze, Trinitarian worship involves being led by the Son's love and praise, love for and praise of the Father. It's like a breeze, like a gale force wind that is blowing. The Son loves the Father and praises Him perfectly. And somehow, and by somehow, I mean Trinitarian corporate worship by the Spirit, we get our sail up a little bit and the wind of the Son's love for the Father catches us and we join in praise. God is leading the worship, not us. Worship leaders. Oh, I got good news. We are tempted to think that we are the ones who need to generate enthusiasm for the Lord. We need to sweep this room up with the fervency of our devotion, with the intensity of our affection, of, of, from my own personal love for God. We need to work it up. And I've got two pieces of good news. First, no, you don't. <laughs> and second, you can knock that off now. <laughs> It is okay to allow yourself the humility and awareness to recognize that in praising God, you are being caught up in something that God is doing. It's the intertrinitarian conspiracy of self-glorification in John 17. There's this astoundingly rich back and forth glorification within the divine life. That's the mystery you are caught up in. Not merely the affections that you can generate for God in a particular moment, but when you are genuinely worshiping the Lord Jesus, you are caught up really, truly in the intertrinitarian cross breezes of the Father's love for the Son. Why? How? It's because when the Father looks at you, he sees you in Christ. When the Father looks at you, he sees you in Christ. The love that God the Father has for you is the love that he has for Christ. We are in some of the deepest waters in all of eternity. So let's talk about it for a second. I'm just about done. Let me share with you one of my favorite illustrations that helps me understand and communicate one of my favorite truths. Here's the truth. All of the benefits of the Lord Jesus are found in him. All of the benefits of the Lord Jesus are found in him because, here's the illustration, he's a bunker, not a baker. Jesus is a bunker, not a baker. What's a baker? A baker, from what I understand, is a person who bakes. They bake bread, cookies, and cakes. And then people come and purchase their baked goods from them and take them home. A baker's benefits are received from him, but separate from him. That evening, as you enjoy your delicious treat, if someone says, tragedy today, our baker died this afternoon, you would be saddened, but you would finish your scone. And that's because a baker's benefits are received from him, but separate from him. A bunker is different. Imagine if I was walking with my wife through 
the city streets and a um, man came up very angrily and said, give me all of your money or I am going to kill you. It would not be sensible for me to turn to my wife and say, it's okay, honey, we are going to be safe. Earlier this week, I purchased a bunker. That, that would not be sensible because the benefits of a bunker are found in the bunker. The bunker's benefits are enjoyed only by the people who are inside the bunker. Jesus is a bunker, not a baker. The benefits of Christ, his righteousness, his joy, his peace, his forgiveness, his mercy, are not generated by Christ like a baker. You don't receive like some righteousness from the Lord Jesus and hear him say like, come back next week if you need some more. No, the benefits of Christ are found in him. In him. Here is a lengthy quote from John Calvin's Institutes. I was very encouraged to hear several of our speakers this week quote from this is book two, um, uh, chapter 16, paragraph 19, hashtag not sorry for the long quote because it's that good. Quote, we see that our whole salvation and all of its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in his anointing. Christ means anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in his dominion. If purity in his conception, if gentleness, it appears in Christ's birth. If we seek redemption, it is found in his passion. If we seek acquittal in his condemnation, if remission of the curse in his cross, if sanctification, sorry, if satisfaction in his sacrifice, if purification in his blood, if reconciliation in his descent into hell, if mortification of the flesh, it's in his tomb, if newness of life, it's in his resurrection, if immortality, it's the same, if inheritance of all the blessings, it's in his kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment, it is found in the power given to him to judge. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in Christ, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from none other. And so here is the emotional intent of my message. I hope you can feel how Trinitarian worship is not a burden for you to carry. It is not another can of sparkling water for you to lug from the pantry to the fridge. It's not a task list of new responsibilities that you need to shoulder. I want you to know and to feel that what the church of Jesus Christ does on a Sunday morning participates in the richest and most glorious reality in the universe. Even though it does not feel like it. It does not feel like it. Have you seen that video? I think it's called Ocean's Heavy Metal Drum Fail. Ocean's Heavy Metal Drum Fail. If you've never seen it, um, uh, don't look at it now, but you can look it up later if you wanted to. I'll just kind of describe it to you. There's a lady playing piano, leading some worship at her local church. It's the song Ocean's. She's singing, playing the piano with kind of like a light synth pad behind her in the background. From what I could kind of figure out, it's about 60 beats per minute. When all of the sudden, 
a drummer enters at 143 beats per minute, playing a beat that somehow combines heavy metal double bass pedal and, and I know this does not make sense, mallets on an electric drum set. Now, if you, um, I'm sure almost everyone in this room has, who's ministered with music in public has had some sort of experience like this. And if you can imagine being that woman for a second, playing the song tenderly, carefully, synth pad in the background, and suddenly an overwhelming cacophony of electronic drum samples. You, I'll just tell you, in that moment, she had an amazing appreciation for the lyric, where feet may fall. She knew that lyric more than anyone else has ever known it. And you know, if you've ever played, um, done music ministry in public before, in those moments, you achieve like an entirely new sense of the power of intercessory prayer. You know, like you're playing and you're like, Lord Jesus, I need your help right now. I am in desperate need for you. Now, I don't know this Southside Community Church where this happened very well. I don't agree with everything I read on their website, but I have no reason to doubt that this is a body of believers who love the Lord Jesus. But friends, some of the people who provided comments on the YouTube video of their perspective of what was happening need some serious help. <laughs> consider, it, consider it like this. Imagine that you got a friend who loves fashion, okay? you got a friend, they, they love the history of fashion, they read fashion magazines, they watch fashion trends. Now imagine that you showed the, your fashion friend a video of Michael Jordan dunking a basketball. There's Jordan. Jordan's running at full speed. He jumps from the free throw line, flying through the air, dunking a basketball. It's one of the most powerful, graceful, admirable athletic achievements ever. But when your fashion friends saw the dunk, they said, I don't like the length of his shorts. And the color of that uniform does not complement his skin tones. That would be an exercise in missing the point. A, a, a man just held a nine and a half inch leather ball in one hand. He jumped from 15 feet away. He generated enough, uh, enough body control, power, speed, force to slam a ball through a metal hoop that's 10 feet in the air. And your response is, those shorts are kind of 90s. Um, you have missed the point. And that absurdity is what we should feel when we're talking about musical preference in our church. Trinitarian worship is the staggering reality that is occurring on Sunday morning. And commenting on the drummer's vibe or the singer's vibrato or even electronic versus acoustic drums is missing the miraculous supernatural activity that is happening whenever God's people worship him. Gloriously, we get to participate, friends, in an ever-increasing way in the divine life. Like the new verse of the old hymn says, we are called to feast forever on a love beyond our time. Glorious Father, Son, and Spirit, now with man are intertwined. Trinitarian worship friends, says that our worship of God is not the sum total of our affections for him, our musical excellence, our cultural relevance, our moral achievement over the last six days. We have some astounding things that are ours. The biblical term is riches. We have riches that are ours. 
We have our adoption as sons of the Father. We have the light of Christ on our hearts. We have the Holy Spirit in us, astoundingly uniting us to Christ, sweeping us up into the intertrinitarian affection that the Son has for the Father, the Father has for the Son. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day and for the opportunity to think together over some really deep things, to think over these last few days over some of the deepest things in reality. Nothing is deeper than this. No being is greater than you. No love is truer than you. No heights are higher than your heights. So we thank you for some time to think about these things, and we simply confess, Lord, that it's too much for us. It is too much for our minds. It's too much for our hearts. And so we ask that you would grow our capacity to understand and to feel the truth of the things that we've been talking about. Lord, we would love to have hundreds of churches. Lord, there's almost a thousand people at this conference. Oh, Lord, a thousand churches that would know in a deeper and more certain way your love for them, that would know the greatness of the salvation that is ours, that would feel what an amazing opportunity and amazing stewardship we have to worship you on a Sunday morning. As the song says, out of the dust we're now rising up and we say, Oh Lord, we're calling you. Show yourself strong. Our unending source you've provided before. Oh Lord, we're calling you. Show yourself strong. Lord, your eyes are looking to and fro throughout the world for those on whose behalf you can show yourself strong. And we would say right now, Lord, over here. Look over here. In Louisville, show yourself strong in our churches, in our worship ministries, in our families, in our lives, on our behalf, show yourself strong. And with an increasing recognition of what this means, we pray these things in Jesus's name. Amen and amen. That is a hard place to stop, but if you'd like to hear more, go to our website, biblicalworship.com. Click podcast. We're happy to share with you the entire thing for free. While you're at our website, you can find information concerning other worship resources from the Institute for Biblical Worship and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's biblicalworship.com. That's what we have for you this time on the Doxology and Theology podcast. Our show is produced by the lanky Evan Jarms, engineered by Caleb Sherwood, and the music is by our good friend Joel Nagus. Until next time, this is Dr. Matthew Westerholm reminding you that the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. Peace be with you. <laughs>